in many ways, it's a crucial book for understanding the gospel of Christ as um, presented by the apostles. But as I was thinking about it, despite this importance, we seldom study the book as a whole. Um, you know, I was thinking about it, I've never, you know, I've been a Christian 22 years now. You know, I've never had a sermon series that tackled anything other than a portion of Isaiah. I've never had a Sunday school lesson that's tried to um, cover anything more than the servant uh, section uh, in chapters 42 to 55. You know, often we'll, we, we cherry pick this book. Uh, you, know, we, you know, we just came off Christmas where we've got great passages like Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We've, we've probably all heard a sermon or a lesson on that verse. But we've probably never heard, uh, uh, or seldom have we heard, um, you know, the rest of that book, <laughs> or the rest of that chapter. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of their heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in the place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. That's what follows <laughs> the for unto us a child is born passage. We, we pick parts of the book. And so um, I was thinking about why is it that we don't try to study the book as a whole? And I think there are several reasons. One is just the book's size. You know, it's 66 chapters, 1,292 verses, 37,044 words in the King James. Um, so it seems overwhelming. You know, it's like the old, you know, how do you eat an elephant? <laughs> at, at first, the task seems enormous. Um, but, you know, as the old proverb goes, you eat an elephant one bite at a time. Um, so that's my hope is that we'll... Um, chew our way through Isaiah um, portion at a time. So besides the sheer size of the book, it's got a complex outline. Um, the book of a Isaiah is really, it's an anthology. Um, it is a collection of prophecies and visions and words from the Lord that Isaiah re receives over decades you know, this isn't, he sat down in one moment and wrote out the book of Isaiah. This reflects uh, decades of prophetic ministry. Um, it pictures events throughout Isaiah's lifetime, and even events hundreds of years later, from the exile to the return of the people from the exile to the coming of Christ. So, you know, it's a book that has an enormous time span that um, it's looking at. It looks at local issues specific to, to Jerusalem and Judah. It looks at broad political um, relationships. Uh, we would call it global politics. Um, so it, it has this huge range. And I was trying to think of the equivalent, and I, I almost brought it with me, but it's frankly too heavy. Um, the Complete Works of Shakespeare. I was going to lay it up here so you can pretend I brought the Complete Works of Shakespeare. <laughs> 
Um, and, you know, it'd be like if I came up and said, well, we're going to do the complete works of Shakespeare. Um, and we're going to do it all in one sitting. You'd be like, what? <laughs> when I was in London, um, right after college, I went to um, a performance of a, uh, it wasn't really a play, but it, it touted itself as the complete works of Shakespeare abridged. Um, and what this play or performance promised was the entirety of Shakespeare's literature, including all the sonnets, in one two-hour performance. Now, uh, as the laughter of some of you uh, indicates, it was, it was a comedy. <laughs> it's pretty funny. They did Hamlet in 43 seconds. Um, they did, I can't remember which, they did Othello as a rap. Um, it, was, it was entertaining. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's comedic because we think, wow, Shakespeare, he had histories, he had commas, he had tragedies. You know, he had all these different kinds of, of, of literary genres. And in a sense, Isaiah is the same way. He's got messages of judgment. He's got messages of hope. He deals with specific sins within Israel. He deals with the sins of the nation. He deals with individuals' responsibility. He deals with God's sovereignty. Um, so it's got this complexity to it that I think um, we find daunting, and especially as he shifts around from one to the other in ways that might jar us. Um, third, the book, um, as we'll read it, will we'll hit, I'm sure, time and time again, things that uh, seem unfamiliar to us, or that on first reading we don't get. Um, he's writing mainly in poetry, and poetry, Hebrew poetry, so it's a foreign po poetic medium to us. He's addressing uh, peoples and nations that we might never have heard of, um, never thought about before. Um, he uses pictures and images, analogies that we don't get. You know, he's speaking in his idiom, and we're in a different language, a different culture, and our idioms are going to be different. So we've got to do um, some translating work. If you're like me, you tend to avoid the unknown. <laughs> you know, if I don't understand it, then, well, let's deal with something that I'm easier to understand. Um, but my hope, and um, as I've been reading through the book for the last couple months, what I've discovered is if we overcome those fears and start to just work our way through the book, um, we will find a message that is strikingly familiar, that's strikingly relevant, and really contemporary. Um, so my hope and prayer for this uh, Sunday school is that through our study we'll experience the gospel as Isaiah teaches us. And we might say the main question that Isaiah is going to present to us over the coming months is how a sinful, corrupt people become humble, faithful servants of a God who's revealed his covenant love to them. So he's going to answer, how does a sinful corrupt people become God's humble, faithful servants. So with that as an intro, um, let me uh, pray, and then uh, we'll read chapter one and jump right in. So. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we do thank you that uh, you are not a, a distant God who created the world and stepped away from it, but you are an intimate, loving God who has entered into relationship with his people. And when those people 
have gone astray, when we've gone astray, uh, you send your prophets, you send your word to call us back to you. And we thank you for the ministry of Isaiah, uh, a prophet whose um, ministry spanned generations uh, of kings. Um, but you, uh, through him, maintained a continuous voice of uh, a call of repentance uh, to your nation and calling them back to yourself. And indeed, you present an expanded view of what it means to be a covenant child, uh, including that message for all the peoples, as Isaiah will tell us. So we ask, um, as we study uh, today and in the coming weeks and months, that you would give us um, humble hearts, uh, willing to learn, um, that we, we come um, willing to be led by your spirit, to be instructed by one another as we try to um, see uh, how your message um, didn't just apply in Isaiah's time, that this message of, of his prophecy, but it speaks to us and it speaks to us how we live, how we worship, how we treat one another, and how we deal with the world around us. And most of all, how we relate to you, our God and Father. And we ask that you would be here with us through Christ's name. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so let me just uh, start by reading chapter 1, and then we'll just kind of dig into it um, section by section. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, or that woe some of your translations might have, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. 
I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water, your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of the righteous, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. All right, so like most prophetic books, um, Isaiah starts here with a brief, um, a, a brief declaration of authorship. So in verse 1, what do we learn about Isaiah and the book as a whole from this single verse? Yeah, four kings. If we are just to add up the raids of these four kings, now they overlap some. But we're talking about, um, you know, Isaiah reigned 52 years. The last 10 years of it, he had leprosy. And so his son, uh, Jotham, also co-reigned with him. So then Jotham's another 16 years. Um, and then he's supplanted um, 
or kind of usurped, co-ruled, however you want to put it, by his son Ahaz. So then they overlap a little, but Ahaz rules 16 years, and then Hezekiah ends up ruling uh, 29 years. So just in all, that's over 100 years. Um, uh, now, in chapter 6, which is sort of where we'll see Isaiah's prophetic call, he talks about in the last year of King Isaiah. So he doesn't tell us, you know, when in, in Isaiah's reign um, he started, and he doesn't tell us when in Hezekiah's reign he ended. But we're talking about a prophetic ministry that people have speculated have lasted anywhere from 25 to 50 years. So that is a long period to minister. And I think that helps explain, um, if you've ever studied Isaiah in any kind of school setting, any kind of secular setting, you know, the thing you'll hear about is, the, the, the main message you'll get is Isaiah is not a single authored book. That the, they'll present the idea that there were two Isaiahs, or three Isaiahs, or when I was TAing at Duke, there was the school of Isaiah. <laughs> so you've got, you know, literally, who knows, hundreds of people working on this book. Now, there are no copies of Isaiah other than the copy we, you know, there are no, Isaiah doesn't exist in other formats other than the one we have, which is all 66 chapters. So the reason they're making that claim is based on language, that in chapter 40, the language shifts. And we'll, you know, if, when we get there, if we get there, God willing, we'll see the language shifts, it does. I mean, the, the theme shifts, the tone shifts, but is that because somebody else is writing it or because he's writing it at a different period in his life, a different time in his life? Um, you know, I, I've only been writing for 20 years now. Um, I, I, the other day I found like one of my old college papers and I was really embarrassed. I, I should burn the thing. <laughs> you know, I, I write differently now. You know, and the words I use now, I didn't use then. Um, Mary's not in here, because she would really love this. Mary just um, uh, read my book uh, for me this past uh, fall and, and graciously, you know, tore it to shred for me. And, uh, and Mary will tell you, I have a, uh, or I had, it's gone now. She's killed it. I had a, don't know where it came from, love for the word augment. And for Mary, I used augment about 20 times too many. <laughs> um, so I, I pretty much can say I'm very self-conscious about, you know, that. But so just in, like, you know, one year <laughs> of time, I've shifted. So a word that was very frequent <laughs> is now not going to be frequent. And so um, the kind of linguistic analysis you know, it doesn't always hold. Um, I had a professor um, in seminary who went to the University of Chicago, who's, and his professor was presenting this in a book, you know, his theory of the book of Isaiah, and that because of the language. So his students got together and took his book and analyzed it and concluded it was written by 27 different people um, based on the language, that he used words in chapter one that he didn't use in chapter nine. So, you know, uh, I think there are other explanations for these kinds of differences. And as James says, it's a long ministry with different kings. You know, um, uh, Isaiah, you know, is, is usually classed as one of the good ones. Um, Ahaz is usually classed as one of the bad ones. Um, policies change. Um, Ahaz was pro-Assyria, even allying with Assyria 
against the northern kingdom of Judah, I mean, of Israel. So he allied Judah and Assyria against uh, Israel, or Judah and Assyria against Israel and Syria. So, you know, that was, you know, he's joining with Assyria against the northern kingdom. <laughs> That's not good. Um, as one person put it, it's like a mouse allying with the cat against another mouse. This is not going to turn out well for anybody <laughs> or any of the mice. It's going to turn out well for the cat. So, you know, with each king, you know, the, the problems that the nation is facing is going to shift. So I think that helps explain a, a lot of the differences. Other things that you get from verse 1. Yeah, yeah, 66 books of the Bible, 66 chapters of Isaiah. Um, yeah, and uh, to, to sort of think, um, and, and the, um, there's a commentator, um, oh, good grief, I'm blanking on his first name, Motir is his last name, and he actually talks about how um, you can actually break the book down by pictures of the Messiah. So you get one picture of the Messiah in chapters 1 through 39, that's very kind of, um, we might say, political. Um, but then in chapter 40, it shifts to that kind of suffering servant, uh, you know, image of the Messiah that we get. Um, and it's a very, you know, to sort of think about, you know, what do we get with the coming of the New Testament, but, you know, this kind of fuller picture of, of, of Jesus. Um, and you could see sort of the same thing um, in the book of Isaiah. He's shifting his focus more particularly on a, on a certain aspect of the coming Christ. Anything else you want to say about chapter 1 or verse 1 of chapter 1? Yeah, um, and, you know, some people, because the book, as we'll see, has a focus, you know, he's going to, we'll, we'll hit, like whole chapters of prophecies against the nations. He addresses the northern kingdom in here. But you're right, his focus is on Judah and Jerusalem. Um, and we'll see that even in this chapter with this talking about the unfaithful city. Um, and, you know, we can sort of think of it as, um, uh, you know, he, he's addressing the core. Um, and it's not that he's not concerned with the periphery, but... It's the core is at the heart. Um, and like when we get to Jerusalem here in a little bit, you know, it's rottenness at the heart um, that is, is going to cause everybody to suffer. But it's the, you know, the center at, you know, this focus on Jerusalem and the corruption and sinfulness that has rotted that city from the inside and it's working its way out. Um, it's like, you know, when you get an apple and it's got like a little bad place on the side, you know, you can just cut it off. But if you like bite into an apple or cut into an apple and it's rotten at the core, you know, like that apple goes in the trash. You know, if it's just got a little bad place, you know, I cut it off and I eat the apple. So it's sort of the, you know, he's addressing this rottenness at the core. Good. Good. 
Um, there are different traditions um, or different ideas. We don't know much about Amos. Um, Jewish tradition holds that he was, um, he was uh, Isaiah's uncle. Um, so if that's the case, then Isaiah has, uh, is of royal lineage. Um, so that's one tradition. Um, there's been an archeological discovery from this time period that makes reference to Amos the scribe. So, you know, he's this kind of high governmental official, but, you know, is it the same Amos or not? Um, but those are kind of the two um, major, and then some people, well, could he be um, related to Amos the prophet? Uh, the spelling's different, so usually that, those are kind of the three typical answers. But to, to my answer is we don't know. Um, you know, he definitely has, you know, the, the kind of royal lineage will make sense because he definitely has a lot of concern, especially in the first 39 chapters, addressing the king's um, ruling in his lifetime. So there is this kind of kingly focus of the book. Anything else? All right, well, let's dig into the real content. So I didn't want to do too much of that. Um, all right, so my first question is, uh, thinking about verses um, primarily two through nine, uh, this is kind of the opening salvo, or sometimes you get people who um, look at this book as, um, as or, or this chapter as a covenant lawsuit. This is God bringing case against his people. Um, so one scholar has actually called it, the, this chapter, the grand arraignment. You know, this is the, the, the opening statement uh, of Isaiah on behalf of God against his people of Israel. Um, another scholar has sort of looked at it as, in chapter one, we get um, spiritual diagnosis. Um, you know, there's a lot of kind of medical language, especially in, in verses five and six. Um, so Israel has a spiritual disease, and so this chapter is, is giving the diagnosis. So let's start with that, um, if we'll use that. Um, if, if Israel or Judah is suffering from a disease, what are its symptoms and what's the prognosis for this patient? Yeah, he's using um, a, a physical illness, and just like a physical illness has expressions and bodily symptoms. So there are all kinds of physical symptoms that you can, he, you can look at and you can see that this is not a healthy people. Um, this is not a people who have spiritual soundness, that, um, that disease has crept in and it's not just sort of, like, I got to blow my nose, sorry. It's not, it's not just sort of starting, just like the cold that my family members have finally passed on to me is starting to get to me. But it's in full bloom, you know, to sort of think of, you know, sores from the head to the toe. That's, you know, that's pretty severe when we got to that stage. You know, we're not at the first little pustule starting to show up on the, sorry, that was gross. Um, so, you know, appearing on the shoulder or something. I'm trying to remember where my first chicken pox was. Um, you know, it's not just the first, it's the, 
it's the pox is in full bloom. <laughs> so whatever the malady is, you know, he's using the physical description. This, we're not into the um, initiatory stages of this illness. This is an illness that's raging through the body as a whole. And he's using that, you know, again, he's going to use lots of images. And that one, I think, um, yeah, is very familiar to us. Yeah, he's got a great usage of Sodom and Gomorrah there. So, you know, if not for the presence of the remnant, you would have been utterly wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he turns around in the next verse and addresses them, you leaders of Sodom, <laughs> uh, you leaders of Gomorrah. So he's, on the one sense, they're not like Sodom and Gomorrah in the fact that they're, they haven't been utterly wiped out. But on the other hand, they're like Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> you know, they have the same kind of, of um, wickedness that justifies that kind of total destruction. And it's only because of God's restraining mercy that he has not unleashed the, the full judgment they, they deserve. But, you know, it's that, again, that great illusion. You know, what's, you know, they're not just a little sinful. You know, he's, he's using that picture that even for us today, you know, we still use Sodom as that image of, of what wickedness is like. This is the epitome of human wickedness, is Sodom. Um, and he's saying that's what Judah has become. Other symptoms or other aspects of this malady. Another way to think about what, what other images or symbols does he use, uh, again, and particularly verses uh, two through nine, does he use to, to describe Israel's situation? <sighs> yeah, Jane. Yeah, that, and um, to sort of think, you know, uh, these are not what we would call the brightest in the pantheon of animals, you know? I mean, he, he uses an ox and a donkey, you know, and we still, you know, oh, that guy, he's dumb as an ox. You know, it's still an idiom for us. Or that person, they're stubborn as a mule. You know, it's still an idiom among us. And so, but even the dumb ox knows who his master is. Even the stubborn mule responds to his master's voice. And yet you people are, you know, you're so stubborn in your wickedness. You know, you've made yourself ignorant of the one who is your father? Um, yeah, and the language, um, there's, again, why people think it's a covenant lawsuit. There's a lot of Deuteronomy that's showing up. And in verses um, uh, 7, verse 7 especially, you know, if we were to go back to, um, well, let's see, I wrote the chapter down. Uh, if we were to go back to the curse formulas in Deuteronomy 28 and 29 or Leviticus 26, uh, there are word-for-word -word similarities between uh, verse 7 and those curse formulas. They are experiencing exactly what God 
had told them they would experience, the kind of desolation, the kind of being overthrown. I mean, I, I love the, the language there, desolate, burned with fire, devoured, overthrown by foreigners. Again, those, that's all curse language. And, you know, he's employing that curse language purposely um, to show them, again, to hearken them back to, look, God said this would happen if you were unfaithful. You've been unfaithful, and now you're experiencing the, the promised effects of that unfaithfulness. And it's not, you know, sometimes we have this idea that, that God's wrath is arbitrary, you know, um, and, you know, we'll, we'll hear some, some tones of that in the book as a whole, sort of people complaining um, that God's wrath is, is being unjustly poured on them. But it's like, um, I, I once heard somebody explain it, you know, God's wrath is like natural laws. You know, if, if I go, um, you know, jump off the top of the prudential building, you know, thinking I can fly. No, God's law is wrong. I can fly. <laughs> That's, I've just experienced, in effect, God's wrath there. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, and it's not, and nobody would say my, the result of that was unnatural. And there's a way that, you know, God's spiritual law has the same, you know, the same cause and effect. You know, the judgment we receive is not disconnected from the acts we've performed. You know, we've, you know, if I drive my car 100 miles an hour into a brick wall, what did I think was going to happen? You know, I was going to go through it. <laughs> my atoms were suddenly going to align and I was going to pass through it and re-come back together on the other side. No, smack. Um, and, you know, they're feeling the smack. Yeah. Yeah, that the, the stubbornness goes beyond just sort of this, again, missing the early symptoms. You know, this is, you know, they're feeling the consequences. I love the lodge. You know, first time I ever read that, I was like, you know, uh, booth in a vineyard, lodge in a cucumber field, what? But, um, you know, the idea is, uh, you know, people lived in cities and farmed outside them. So, you know, to, to sort of save time during harvest, they just put up like a little shack, you know, out in the middle of their field that they could spend the night in. So the idea, though, is this kind of isolation, you know, that um, it's, you know, you're, you're no longer, <laughs> you know, it's this 
this picture of the, the d- destructions taking place all around you. I'm trying to remember, there's like some silent movie or something, or maybe it was just a continuous silent movie gag, where you know, like the guy goes into the bathroom and you know, the door closes, and while he's in the bathroom, everything around him is destroyed, and then he comes out and he's like, you know, <laughs> you know, that's all that's left. Or uh, I also thought of, there's a great picture from the Civil War of, I can't remember, it's either Savannah or Charleston after Sherman's army's gone through. And it's like this, you know, city blocks just laid waste to, but they had kept the saloon. <laughs> so you've got this picture of the saloon amidst complete devastation all around it. And it's like the surviving object, you know, just makes the, the desolation around it all the more striking. And it's this picture of how isolated that they've, they've become. It's personal. Yeah, it, it's and it's judicial blinding. But the to go back to the it's it's more than just the consequences. And I'm you know I was hoping you you'd do that. So you are always so good. <laughs> um, you know to it's more than just you know the smack into the wall. This is not just you know the judge passing sentence on some you know, unknown, uh, you know, defendant or unknown perpetrator, you know, notice the personal language in this, you know, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Um, You know, if this is a a covenant lawsuit, it's in family court, you know, this is not, um, you know, uh, all right, you did bad things, you unknown person, no, this is God's people. And this, you know, what's, again, what's really scary is the, the people he calls, calls children, you know, in, in verse 2 and in verse 4, you know, those are the people um, that, uh, in verse 24, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. You know, the people who are the children of God are the ones who've become God's enemies and God's foes. Um, you know, to, to think about this, this is, um, this violation is even worse, <laughs> you know, than just sort of mere dis- civil disobedience. Uh, the relationship between Israel and God is described in terms of child and parent. Israel's offense is against common decency and common sense as they committed unnatural rebellion against the one who bore them and loved them. Um, so to sort of, you know, here we have uh, unnatural rebellion. Um, it's, and so it's the effects of, of their sin, but it's also their offense against God their father.
Yeah, and there's a great way, you know, again, I, I, one of the things I hope we discover over the course of the semester is, you know, how much of the whole story of the Bible, again, is in this book, you know. Um, you know, he's really got a, a wide scope. Um, and, you know, sort of to think here, because um, he's got later in the book, he's going to have that great picture of um, the kingdom restored. You know, it's Isaiah who teaches us about, and the lion shall lie down with the lamb, you know. Um, you know, the little child's going to play in the serpent's den. You know, that's an Edenic picture. You know, that's what creation will look like when it's been restored. Um, but here, looking at it, what it's like when it's under a curse. And then when the people that God has called out to be his faithful nation, um, to be his kingdom of priests, uh, when they turn against him, you know, what happens? What's that like? Um, and sort of thinking of kind of the priestly aspects, let's move on to the next section. Um, in, in verses 11 through 19, he gives this striking condemnation of Judah's worship. Um, and, you know, I guess I was thinking about, you know, um, in one sense, God, everything that we see here listed, you know, the, the burnt offerings, um, uh, Sabbaths, convocations, appointed feasts, these are all things that God has told them to do. And yet, um, these are the things that he's saying he hates and rejects. So if God gave the instruction for Israel's worship, what makes him so thoroughly despise and reject that worship in these verses? Yes, Andy. Yeah, they're going through the, the, the motions of doing the worship, uh, making the sacrifices, but the attitudes of their heart have not been changed. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's the way that um, uh, sacrificial, they, they've been influenced by the sacrificial systems around them, which are really kind of you know, structured about, you make sacrifices to manipulate the God into basically working for you. Or as um, I once had a um, Sunday school teacher talk about how, you know, you know, it's a Coke machine kind of th theology. You know, I put my sacrifice in and I get X out, you know, you know, uh, you know, and it's this kind of expectation of, automatic so if i do the right sacrifices and do them in the right way and make the right you know if i follow the formula then ding blessing pops out um, or what i requested pops out or prosperity pops out um, it's this kind of um, going through the motions I, I think is a great way to to describe it yeah ding Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's rebellion at that, you know, as you said, that moment of worship, you know. <laughs> it's the moment that, that's supposed to be the epitome of the relationship, and that's the height of their rebellion. Their worship is sinful. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, sort of think of, um, you know, like any time you've ever seen a movie where, like, somebody in the king's court is plotting against the king, and the moment they seem most kind of despicable is when they're like, you know, going through the motions of, oh, your most gracious royal highnessy, majesty, you know, your highness, you know, blah, blah, blah. But you know, <laughs> if he had a chance, he'd be stabbing you in the back. <laughs> um, and that's the way he's depicting their, their worship itself it has become, a, you know, the prime vehicle for showing their treachery. Yeah, that it's, and it's, it's the way Isaiah, um, uh, as Daniel was saying, you know, it's, it's getting to the heart, you know. It's getting to, as Sandy said, the attitude. It's getting to what, posi- what is the position of the worshiper. Um, you know, he cannot, you know, I, I think the best picture or one of the most striking pictures of this is first, verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. And then we get the, the reason in the last, the last line of that stanza. Your hands are full of blood. You know, it's, you, know you come with these bloody, murderous deeds, and those, yeah, you know, uh, pray, you know, bless me God, you know. You're still dripping with the blood of your iniquities. And those are the hands you're lifting up in, in, in you know, requesting to God to favor you. How offensive, you know, must that be to God, you know, that you're so blind to your sinfulness that, you know, that you're not doing this. And again, another kind of New Testament picture of this is, you know, when, when Jesus says, you know, if you have this grievance with your brother, don't come forward <laughs> until you've made peace. Don't act like, oh, you know, everything's hunky-dory. You know, when you have this real grievance, you need to uh, address that before you come to worship. Um, you, you know, don't leave, check the heart at the door and, and, and go through the motions. Um, another way to sort of to think about it is, um, uh, you know, the kind of worship they're presenting here, no repentance, no change of behavior was necessary what was necessary was that the sacrificial procedures be followed and that they be followed exactly and they expect automatic forgiveness without any commitment or change of behavior. I mean, that's the picture of worship. Yeah, and we see that here, you know. He follows up with this, you know, he, he gives eight imperatives, you know, and, you know, it's a striking list in our Bible. It's really striking in Hebrew because it's really abrupt. Um, but, you know, 
Cease, uh, or wash yourselves, remove the evil of your deeds, cease to do evil, learn to good, do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. I mean, it's boom, 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 boom. <laughs> you know, this is what I want. I want, um, I want an obedient heart and not, you know, obedient motions. Yeah, it's, it's this power struggle. And, you know, it, am I going to you know, think about worship as an act of submission? You know, that when I come to worship, it, it's, not a, it's not a declaration of my goodness or, you know, my power of my circumstances. It's an acknowledgement of my need, you know, and of, that God, who has called me to worship, has the power, and I am coming as his faithful you know, servant. Um, and that's, again, to sort of think of how, um, why I think chapter one is a great overview of the book as a whole, because what's going to become the image of, of the Messiah that, you know, sticks with us from this book. It's, you know, my servant, my servant who, who's, you know, willing to give his life, you know, for his people. You know, that, that's the kind of He's, he models for us, you know, what our heart should look like. Um, and here he's giving us the picture of, um, you know, how um, self-authoritative worship can become. And again, um, he's using Israel. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking of how easily, you know, we kind of fall into the, you know, went to church this week. Yep. Bible study on Friday. Yep. Um, I missed the men's breakfast yesterday. Well, God give me a pass on that. Um, you know, but we, we kind of like, you know, we, we, and we kind of can do that spiritual hierarchy, you know, look around and, oh, I've been to all these things this week. You know, isn't God happy to have me on his side, you know, a powerful Christian like me? And that's not the heart of the worshiper. Yeah, this, and again, that's another, I'm glad you pointed to that because we're, we're hitting the end. Um, you know, even amidst all this judgment, and we've been focused on the judgment, um, you know, aspects and the wickedness of Israel, even amidst all that, you know, you know, their betrayal has been, you know, this, the ultimate wickedness they're almost like Sodom and Gomorrah it's the parent father or child rebelling against the father 
you know. But despite all that, if you turn, humble yourself. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though you're, you know, you're red, you'll be white. Um, you know, cleanse completely. Um, you know, and it's this great, uh, you know, picture of the hope of forgiveness. Um, and again, I, it's, we'll see that theme again and again throughout the book. Um, you get these, you know, statements that, you know, wow, they've gone beyond the pale this time. You know, clearly they're going to get cut off. And then it's followed by, but if you trust in him, <laughs> you know, you know, that it's, again, and that's one of the reasons I want us to see this book. And as we study this book, you know, it's this great picture of the gospel. You know, it's a description of human sinfulness, but it's also the picture of, of the coming of Christ. And this is what happens when Emmanuel God with us, um, that's the kind of cleansing you need. Yeah, Jerry. Yeah, and the, you know, we didn't, again, we got, there are all kinds of things we couldn't quite get to today, but, you know, as we think about, um, these are people who, in many ways, are prosperous, you know, to think Isaiah reigned 52 years, you know, if, if you've got a king on the throne for 52 years, you're, you're doing pretty well, um, and we see that, you know, and um, we'll see that even more, we see it some here, you know. <laughs> um, you know, it's, uh, they've, in one way, they're prosperous, but it's what they're doing with that prosperity, how they're making themselves prosperous. Um, again, if we think of a system where, you know, you think you can buy God's favor, you know, who does that system automatically advantage? The wealthy. <laughs> the people who can, you know, uh, well, if I can buy God's favor, then, you know, I'll, I'll sacrifice, you know, a hundred oxen, you know. Um, and if I need another oxen, I'll just take one from this little guy over here. And, you know, so it, it's a system that, you know, gives attention to the wealthy. Um, and from the, for the priest's perspective, this is where it preys off for the priest. And they really benefit because they're going to cater to the guy who can give them a hundred oxen to sacrifice. They're going to direct their attention. Uh, rulers are going to direct their attention to the people who, you know, um, who can pay. And the fatherless, the widow, <laughs> you know, go somewhere else. Um, you know, talk to me when you can actually give me something. Um, 
you know, and it's that, that you know, materialistic selfishness um, that, that Jerry is pointing to us. Again, it's going to be another theme that we'll see in the book. Well, I need to close this in prayer. Yeah, one question, please. No, just one. Yeah, and again, it's, um, this is a book, you know, um, I've really been struck how much Jesus is in here, how much I'm in here as a Gentile, you know, that, you know, that this is a message, these are his covenant people, but I can be part of that covenant people too, that, you know, they need to be faithful so they can extend that gospel message to me. Um, and, um, and I'm glad you ended with that, because over and over in this book, we're going to hit a lot of judgment, but I always want us to come back um, to the cross of Christ um, and to the way that uh, Christ takes that judgment upon himself, that though our sins are like scarlet, they'll be as white as snow, as though they're red like crimson, they'll become like wool. Um, so let me close this in prayer. Almighty God, I confess as I read this description of um, Judah and Jerusalem, I um, see so many ways that my own heart um, has committed spiritual adultery and that my own lifestyle has become adulterated by all the kinds of impurities um, uh, that I'm led away by my quest uh, for power or that my, uh, to build up my self-importance or my desire to gain material things of this or that or my seeking after my own uh, pleasure and comfort um, and not thinking about uh, the comfort of others and not thinking about how my uh, wayward heart brings offense to you. Lord God, help uh, me to repent um, and help us uh, to see the ways that we sin before you. But help us then use that turning to turn to you as the one who brings cleansing. That though I all too often uh, come before you with bloody hands, that you are the one who can take that iniquity away. You are the one who has taken that iniquity away. And that you desire for me to become a faithful, obedient servant who seeks after your righteousness and seeks after your justice um, in this world. Lord God, this is not something I can do in of myself, but only by the power of of your Holy Spirit and by a changed heart. And we ask that you would continue to uh, prick our consciences, uh, to awaken us uh, to the places where we are sinful, but most of all, to help worship you in spirit and truth as a humble people who acknowledge the great salvations that's to be found in our God, uh, even Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.
Amen.
wire them up. Let's get the. No. There are no redemptive. Who are you kidding? Daniel. Come on, Daniel Joyce. And yourself? Yeah. Well, good, because I'm disappointed in you, too. And I want you to know that. Oh, let's. Oh, wow. Hey. Thought you'd grab the thanks. I appreciate that. Thanks for including me. Good morning. How are you?